What would life be like if our bodies never healed? Um, it's, it's a weird question. It's something that we can easily take for granted, but I want you to suspend reality for a second and imagine that. It's a concept that um, I've been toiling around in my head with. Um, it's a concept from a fascinating book that I read just this week called Elantris by Brandon Sanderson. Um, and in that world, in the world of Elantris, um, certain people develop a condition called the shield. And um, when you have the shield, you can't die naturally. Um, but you also can never heal. So I want us to put ourselves in that reality. What would life be like if you couldn't die, but you also could never heal from anything? Think about it. If you gave it enough thought, um, I think you'd come to realize that that is a fate that would be worse than death. Just imagine, yes, you may be immortal to a degree, but every injury, every wound stays with you. The pain would never subside. Every cut, scrape, broken bone, bruise, all of them would hurt just as much today as they did the day you got them. Every new pain would compound upon the previous ones and make the collective pain just worse and worse. Could you imagine living such a life as that? That's unimaginable to me. I think it would become unbearable, right? Eventually, that pain would become intolerable for us we'd snap, and that's exactly what happens to the people in the book. Um, the people who fall victim to the shield, all of them end up going utterly insane from the pain that they experience. Their bodies might continue to work indefinitely, but their minds withdraw and detach, and, to, and they just enter this place and realm in their own heads where all they know is pain and suffering. It's a horrifying fate. And this book, like I said, that I, that I read wrestles with what do you do when that is a, a condition, a fate that you can have. As I read the book, though, what impacted me the most was not even that condition itself. It was the utter hopelessness of the characters who got it. At the start of the book, one of the two main characters, the story follows two main people, and one of them is stricken with the shield. Um, and as the story progresses, you see him and other characters wrestle with and face the utter abject hopelessness of the shield because there is no cure for it. If you have it, that is inevitably the fate that you will face. There's seemingly, seemingly nothing that they can do to stop it. And for many of those victims, that hopelessness is equally as debilitating as the condition itself, the pain that they experience. In fact, many of the people succumb to the insanity long before they otherwise should have because of the hopelessness that they feel about their lives. Um, Friends, I bring up this, it probably sounds a very bleak story, 
Um, which it's interesting because the book isn't actually that bleak. It just sounds like it from how I'm describing it right now. But um, I bring up this bleak story because it illustrates the power and importance of hope. A life without hope is a dark, despairing existence. In my opinion, there is nothing worse than a life without any hope at all. In contrast, a life that is filled with hope can be an indescribable gift and blessing. And that's where our text for this morning comes in. We'll be looking at Hebrews 6, verses 9 through 20 today. And it comes at the tail end of a similarly very bleak section of Scripture. Um, In the verses just before our passage, I'm not going to read through it, but the author of Hebrews warns of people who have no hope for salvation. In our verses, though, what comes after that warning of the, those hopeless individuals with no hope of salvation, in our verses, the author reminds us of why we can and should be hopeful. So that's what I want us to focus on this morning. And let's turn our attention to that, to our Bibles right now. So if you haven't already turned to Hebrews 6, our text is actually on page 1004 in the Black Pew Bibles, if you want to flip there quickly. I'd like for you guys to follow along as I read our passage. So this is Hebrews 6, verses 9 through 20. God's word says this. Though we speak in this way, talking about, again, these individuals who have no hope of salvation, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises." For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So, When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise that the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge have, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Redeemer, today's sermon, as I've already said, is about hope. It's about finding a hope for our lives that is stable, trustworthy, and safe. So many things in this life will disappoint us. 
In fact, there's only one thing that won't. And I want us to see what that is according to this author this morning. I want us to start this new year, 2020, with the goal of being more hopeful people. That is my prayer for this church this year. And I don't mean just hopeful, optimistic, Pollyannas in this general sense. My prayer is that we would be a church full of men, women, and children who are able to face anything that life throws at us with confidence and peace because we have placed our hope in the only sure and steadfast anchor for our souls, as we'll see in this text. I believe that this passage would argue that there is no better goal that you could set for yourself this year. And to prove that, I want us to focus on three things from this passage. So these are gonna be our three, our three main points. First, we're gonna see the purpose of hope. We're gonna see how hope affects our lives. Then we're going to see the person of hope in our second point. Simply being hopeful is not just enough. We need to place our hope in the right thing, or more accurately, as we'll see, the right person. So we'll see more of that in our second point. And then in our last point, I want us to finish the sermon with a reflection on what it practically means to pursue a rightly hopeful life. If you want to grow in hope, how do you do that? That's what I want us to tackle in the final point. So that's kind of the trajectory that I want us to go through this morning. Um, Let's first, as I said, turn our attention to the purpose of hope. So what purpose does hope serve for us? Why do we need it? To some degree, I think it's an unnecessary question to ask, um, to be honest. I'm sure that if I went around and asked each one of you why we need hope, you would all have an answer. I don't think a single person in this room would say, eh, it's fine if someone's hopeless. It's okay, they'll be fine. Like, I don't think anyone here would say that. We all intuitively recognize a need to have hope in something. Every single person on earth hopes for something. It drives us, it keeps us going each day. We all believe deep down that life can be better, that we could be happier and more satisfied. And we go about living each day, taking the steps that we believe will help us realize that hope. That's what keeps us going each and every day. Only those experiencing the deepest kinds of despair seem to be truly without hope. But even in those cases, sadly, people will look to when life doesn't offer them hope anymore, they turn to death as hope for relief when they have lost hope that life can help them find peace. It's heartbreaking, but that's why people turn to suicide. Even in instances of suicide, there's a hope placed in something. My point is is that we're always hoping in something. So I don't need to convince you to be hopeful. That's not what I'm aiming at. It comes naturally to us. But I do want us to ask, why is it good? What is its purpose for us? We begin to see an answer at the beginning of, Hebrews, of this passage in Hebrews 6. Look with me again at verses 9 through 12. 
It says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The author of this letter is desperate for us to be hopeful. Why? As verse 12 says, so that you may not be sluggish, so that we can be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Don't overlook what it's saying. The author of Hebrews wants us to be hopeful because assurance and hope lead to salvation. When we have faith and patience, which are forms of hope, we are walking the same path that leads to salvation for others who came before us. That's why it's calling us to be imitators of them. On the other hand, if we don't have faith and hope, then the verse implies that we will not receive that promised salvation. And God himself expresses the same idea later in the passage. Look with me at verses 17 and 18. It makes this interesting comment. (coughs) Sorry, excuse me. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So notice that when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, God wants us to have hopeful confidence. He doesn't want us to be unsure, uncertain about our salvation. He wants us to be confident in it. Now, this might seem like a trivial point to make, but it isn't. Hope is not simply an evolutionary adaptation that we have. It's not merely a biochemical reaction in our brains. We are hopeful because God intends for us to be. There is something that he has offered us that he desperately wants us to believe and hope in. That's where salvation can be found. But that, of course, begs the question, what are we supposed to hope for? Where should we place our faith? (laughs) Thank you. I'm going to take a quick break. Those two questions about where we're supposed to put our hope, where we should place our faith, those are in my second point. Simply having hope is not enough. Both sections of Hebrews 6, verses 9 through 20, that we've looked at already, imply that we need to place our hope in the right thing. Again, it's not just this nebulous, it's not just this general hope, it's a hope in something specific. There's these promises that we have to believe. What are they? So that's what we're gonna look at. But even before we look at that, 
I want to ask a couple questions because I want us to take a step back and consider a couple things first. Why are we always looking for something? Have you ever thought about that? Why, why do we never arrive at full happiness, full satisfaction? Why are we always hoping for something more? In other words, what drives our dissatisfaction in life? Why are you unhappy? Think about that. It isn't at its core because you don't have enough money, although we oftentimes think that way. It isn't at its core because you are single maybe, or maybe you have an unhappy marriage. It isn't because you don't have your dream job, or your dream house, or your dream kids even. It isn't because you had bad experiences growing up, or um, you dealt with abuse or trauma in your past, as many of us have. Now friends, I'm not saying this to trivialize any of those things. Living with those things, living in poverty, experiencing deep loneliness, dealing with trauma, all of those are profoundly weighty things that should cause us to long for something better. But friends, none of those things are the root of your unhappiness. It is easy for us to blame other people or our circumstances for our dissatisfaction, but they aren't our true problem. If you had everything good that this world had to offer, it still wouldn't be enough for you. If you weren't lacking in anything, you would still want more. Why? It's because the problem is our sin, not our circumstances. What every human being yearns for, even if we don't recognize it, is freedom from sin and nearness to God. Think back to the story I shared at the beginning from the book Elantris. Think about the shield, a condition in which you cannot die, but you also can never heal. What if I said that we face something similar? Instead of immortal bodies that never physically heal, we have eternal souls that are tainted by sin that we can't wash away. It's like we experience a spiritual version of the shield. Without a cure, each sin we commit just builds upon the other ones. They never go away. We can never heal them. They just build and build and build, compounding our guilt before God until eventually, without someone or something to free us from that guilt, we face an eternity of torment in hell and away from God. Friends, that reality is why we're always longing for something more. Because the things of earth that we obtain, that we acquire for ourselves, whether it's love, whether it's earthly wealth or possessions, those things don't solve that fundamental problem that we have. They can't. And we can't solve that ourselves by doing enough good things. 
Think about it this way. C.S. Lewis says in his book, Mere Christianity, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Friends, that other world that he is talking about is heaven. It's communion with God. It is a world where sin no longer separates us from him. And we are able to experience full communion and fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is what we all need. Sadly, though, we oftentimes turn to other things to try to satisfy that longing. We think, as I was saying before, that if we do enough good things, if we have enough of the right answers, if we've got really good doctrinal views, um, if we are loved by enough people, then it will be good, it'll be enough for us, we will be happy, we will be satisfied and content deep in our souls. But that will never be enough because none of those things can again remove our sin and restore our relationship with God. The relationship that we were designed and meant from the beginning of creation to have. So what do we do? The answer is that we listen to what God has to say. Look with me again at verses nine through 12. It says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, I I want you to see the big picture, the overall idea that these verses are communicating. This whole section is telling us that there is something that we can believe, something that we can trust in that will provide us what we need. God has made a way for us to be free of sin and near to him. And he wants us to be confident of that. The offer of Hebrews then goes on in the next verses to explain why we should trust God. So he's telling us, we see at the very end of verse 12, he's talking about inheriting these promises. These are the promises of God. It's the promise that there is something that if we hope in, if we put our faith in, that will save us, that will answer that problem of our sin for us. And so what the author is now saying is, before we look at what that promised thing is, I want you to understand why God is trustworthy, why you can trust his promises. So that's where the passage goes next. Look with me at verses 13 through 18. It says this, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. 
And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all these disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Okay, so this passage is a little confusing, but it is brilliant, and I want you guys to see that, so I wanna explain this. The author of Hebrews is, like I said, giving us a reason for why we should trust God. And his argument for why God is trustworthy is threefold. And you'll see what I mean as we make our way through the text. So he's got three arguments, three reasons for why God is trustworthy. First is that his argument is that God is powerful enough to be trusted. And to prove this, the author goes to a well-known example from the Old Testament, which would have been really familiar to his audience because he's writing to Hebrews. They would be very well-versed. They would have had probably huge portions of the Old Testament memorized. They would have known exactly what he is referencing here. Um, If you're not sure what he is referencing, he's referencing Genesis 22, verses 15 through 18. I'm going to read that. If you want, you can turn there. But it almost reads exactly the same as what we see in these verses. Now, this passage comes right after Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac. Right after that, This passage says this, in Genesis 22, it says, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So here we have the author of Hebrews citing a famous instance of God demonstrating his miraculous power. That's why I think that he quotes and references this specific example. This is one of the most well-known, one of the most powerful miracles that God did for his people. Abraham and Sarah were past the point where they could have children, yet God miraculously allowed them to have Isaac. And then... God promised that he would make a mighty nation out of Abraham's descendants. He gives him a miraculous child, and then he does that. He raises up from Isaac and Isaac's descendants a vast nation, and that ultimately culminated in the coming of Jesus, which is what we'll talk about later. That promise that God made to Abraham, only he is powerful enough 
to be able to fulfill that promise. Only he could perform a miracle such as that. And also notice, this is so interesting how the author of Hebrews focuses on this, this fact that God swore upon his own name. Isn't that a weird comment? Like, wh- why? why does he focus on that? The idea of that makes sense when you think about what, when we make oaths or when we make promises. This is kind of an old-fashioned behavior now, but at the time, it was very normal. God swore upon his own name because God is God. There is no one greater than him. There's no one more holy, more glorious. Usually, when people would make an oath then, and some people still do it today, they do it upon something more honorable than themselves to show how serious they are. Think about it. Have you ever heard someone say, like, I swear upon, like, my mother's grave or swear upon something? It's someone or something that was precious to them, something that they, are, that they find honorable. And the idea is you, I mean, even as the passage says, um, you swear upon something greater than yourself, and that shows how serious and how much you mean the promise and the oath that you're making. But this is reminding us, God is the top of the totem pole. There is no one or anything greater than him. So for him to swear by the greatest thing, he has to swear upon himself. And so it's just reminding us, not only by the example of God's powerful demonstration of upholding his promise, but he's reminding them that, remember who we're talking about here. This is no mere mortal or mere person. This is God. He's so great and glorious that for him to make a promise, he's got a promise upon himself. It's, it's so interesting. It's noteworthy that the author of Hebrews says that. So again, one argument that the author is making is that God is trustworthy because he is powerful enough to uphold any promise he makes. His second argument is what we see in verse 17, and that's that God is trustworthy because of his unchangeable character. Look with me again at verse 17. It says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Remember this. God does not change his mind. He never changes. His plans always remain the same. The technical term for this idea is the fact that God is immutable. This reminder from the author of Hebrews, the fact that he has an unchanging purpose and will, tells us that God isn't fickle like we are. His goals, his plans, his desires don't change like ours do. That's part of the reason why we don't typically make New Year's resolutions. Most people don't do it because when we make resolutions, we fail at them usually within the first month of the year. We are very fickle. Our 
desires, our motivations, our intentions, they change. They are so quick and fleeting. That make, that's why we, even when we make promises, are not trustworthy. God is utterly unlike us in that regard. He is unchanging. If he makes a promise, if he has a desire and will to do something, that will not change. What he intended to do 4,000 years ago is the same thing that he intends to do today and will be the same thing that he intends to do 4,000 years from now. This gives us confidence because it means that we can trust his promises. He will not change his mind on us. But that's not it. The author makes a third argument here as well. And that's that God is trustworthy because he cannot lie. If you look right back at verse 18, it says, so that by two unchangeable things, that's talking about the promise and the oath that God made, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we would have fled for refuge. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So he's saying, Not only is God's character unchanging, but we can believe in his promise and oath because he's not lying to us. He cannot lie. Redeemer, I hope that you see the brilliance of this argument here. I I was, my mind was blown as I was working on the sermon, meditating on on these points. Because every reason that you could come up with for why God wouldn't be trustworthy is refuted by one of these three things. God cannot make a promise that he isn't strong enough to fulfill. He cannot make a promise that he will change his mind about. And he cannot make a promise that he never intended to fulfill in the first place. He is and ever will be faithful to uphold his promises exactly as he states them. He alone is trustworthy, totally and utterly. It is him alone, in him alone, that we should place our faith. And there is no evidence more powerfully demonstrating that than the evidence that we see talked about in verses 19 and 20. So look with me at those verses again. So this is coming right off the tail end of saying, we who have fled from refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So that it's talking in these next two verses about what that hope is. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I'm not gonna be able to touch, I don't have enough time to touch on everything here about like what does it mean that he's a high priest uh, forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's a lot of Old Testament language and um, just terminology, terminology that's used here. But they all point, it all points to the same idea that God made a promise 
that he would set apart a people for himself. He would be their God and they would be his people. He would wash away their sins that separated them from him and he would draw them into fellowship with himself. That's what it's talking about when it's referring to Jesus going to the place behind the curtain. That is entering into the holy of holies to mediate before the throne of God for us, to bridge the gap that existed between us and him because of our sins. God promised that he would restore his broken relationship with his people. We can and should believe that promise because it has already been fulfilled, as we are reminded here, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is our hope. God the Father made the promise, and God the Son fulfilled it for us. All who place their faith in him, who trust that he died on the cross so that their sins might be removed from them, that their sins would be washed away, that they would be cleansed and made new. All those that trust in his sacrifice on the cross will receive salvation and the inheritance of the God Almighty. Jesus' sacrifice was the cure and hope that we desperately needed and could not find anywhere else. That is what the author of Hebrews and God both want us to be confident in. They want us to trust in Christ, not our own works or accomplishments. Your hope is not that you are good enough to be loved by God, because you're not. None of us are. I'm not saying that from some ivory tower telling you, oh, you're not good enough, but I am. No, I am not either. Not a single person who has walked this earth is worthy of God's love. But he has chosen to give it to us, and because we couldn't be with him in his holiness because of our sin, he made a way for our sin to be dealt with so that we could approach him before his throne in his holiness. So he has chosen to love us, and through Jesus, he has made a way for us to experience his love by being with him. That is the gospel. Your hope is that God chose to love you despite yourself, and he made a way for you so that you could be near him. That is why Jesus is the sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. Our anchor is not a thing, it's a person. Our hearts long to be with him, and he has ensured that we will get to experience that fully one day. And the author's hope in this letter is that we would be confident of that each and every day of our lives, that we would believe it and trust in it because they, be they believe that that will transform the way that we live our lives, as verse 12 says. It's, if we have full assurance of hope until the end, we will be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We're not hoping so that we'll be good people so that we can earn our salvation. Being good people is not the cause of our salvation. 
It is the effect of it. It is the fruit of it. Our faith is, is enough. But that brings me to my final point. And this is where I want to get more practical. How exactly do we pursue greater confidence in Christ? And to put it another way, how does one become a more hopeful person in him? How does one live each day in confidence that he or she will inherit the promises of God? And I ask that because I know we all experience on a daily basis doubts and lies. So how do we go from people being people of doubt, people of uncertainty, of fear, to becoming people of confident hope and assurance in Jesus Christ and what he did for us. How do we do that? I have seven suggestions for us. I know that's a lot. I will go through them quickly. Um, And most of them come either directly or indirectly from our passage. Um, But these are seven suggestions, and I'm gonna have them on the screen if you wanna take notes. These are seven suggestions for things that you can do to pursue greater hopefulness in Christ. Because here's the thing, you cannot make yourself more hopeful. That is a work of the Holy Spirit that he must do in your hearts. But these seven activities are things through which the Spirit usually accomplishes that work. So you could think of it this way. If hope is the fruit that you want your life to bear, these seven activities are your way of creating the perfect greenhouse for which the Holy Spirit can work in. Maybe that's the best way that you can look at it. So, again, seven things that you can do practically to help you to grow in confidence and hope in Christ. So first, learn more about God. Seems really simple. We need more than just a promise to experience deep assurance. Because again, we need to know that the one who's making the promise is trustworthy. It's just like the author of Hebrews has shown us in the passage. That's why he gave us basically verses 13 through 18. We need to know God. We need to know his trustworthy character. So learn about him. Read the Bible, read other books. If you want a good starting place for a book outside of the Bible, read Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Fantastic book. Really easy to read. You'll learn a lot about God from it. So just a suggestion. But read things that help you learn about the character and attributes of God. As you get to know him better, you will see how trustworthy he is and you will find it easier to trust in his promises. Second, memorize God's promises. This is pretty self-explanatory and again, I think we see this pretty clearly from the passage. It doesn't help you to know God is trustworthy if you don't know what his promises are for you. So know them, memorize them, Scripture is the sword of the Spirit, as Galatians says. With it, we combat lies and the doubt in our own hearts. So think of yourself as a knight, 
medieval knights, they always kept their swords on them because they never knew when an enemy would attack them. So we should do the same thing. We always should have our sword of the Spirit on hand. By memorizing God's promises, you have a sword at your immediate disposal to combat the lies and doubts that are constantly trying to discourage you. So don't just read scripture, definitely do at least that, but even more than that, memorize even just a couple verses that really speak well to your heart. You're gonna hear um, a great passage that is really powerful for me in our benediction later. Maybe that's something to memorize, but find passages in scripture that remind you, that anchor you in the promises of God. Third, remind yourself why God loves you. So don't just remind yourself of his promises, but remind yourself of why he loves you. I've already in large part addressed this, but our hearts are prone towards legalism. So we are inclined to think that God's love for us is dependent upon how good we are. Therefore, we look to our own actions for reassurance. Our default mode is not typically going to be to look at scripture for reassurance. We're gonna look at our actions. We're gonna say, oh, I read my Bible every day this week. I'm doing good. God must love me. Or I share the gospel with this person. I'm doing really well. God must be really happy with me. We, we look to so many of our actions, our behaviors, things like that for our reassurance. But that's the wrong thing to do. That's not where we should be looking. Instead, we should look to Jesus' death on the cross as our reassurance. That is the evidence of God's love for you. That is your testimony that God loves you regardless of whatever sin you have committed. He knows your heart. He knows how wicked you are. He knows that even better than you do. But he still gave his son for you. So look to the cross for your reassurance, for your confidence that he loves you. Don't look to your actions. Don't look to what you've been doing. Look to the cross. Reminding ourselves of this must become a part of our daily rhythm in life because we far too easily forget it. Four, listen to biblical reminders from others. This is exactly why the author of Hebrews wrote this letter in the first place. He's trying to encourage us. He wants us to listen to him. So listen to those who are speaking into your life. Let me ask you this. How engaged are you normally with sermons? Do you actively listen to them? Do you engage with them? Do you think about what the speaker is saying, how it matches up with scripture? Are you actively involved in the listening process when you are sitting here on a Sunday morning? Or is this typically your time to daydream? Maybe I shouldn't ask that question because if you're daydreaming, you're probably not even hearing what I'm saying. But, but how do you respond to the sermons that you listen to? Or think about a different scenario. Think about when you're discouraged and someone else is trying to encourage you with biblical teaching. 
Maybe you're meeting with an LTG or just a friend and they're trying to encourage you with some biblical truths. How do you react to that? Are you attentive to what they're saying? Or do you just kind of consider their counsel or do you just kind of disregard their counsel? You just say, oh, they don't really understand what I'm going through. They don't understand my situation. So what they're saying is kind of irrelevant. Do you really take to heart the biblical truths that people are speaking into your life? Appreciate them, dwell them. If you don't see immediate application for it yourself, don't just get up and give up and move on to something else. Keep searching. You will be amazed how the Spirit will use the encouragement of others to strengthen your hope and confidence in Christ. If you go into each spiritual conversation or sermon determined to find something beneficial, some beneficial lesson to take away from it, I guarantee you, you could hear a very poor sermon, but if you go into it with the mindset, I want to, I will find some beneficial lesson for me to take away from this, you can. Unless it's totally heretical, you can take something away from even a poorly preached sermon, but you've gotta actively engage with it. You gotta listen attentively, so do it. Five, tell others about Jesus. Again, this is why the letter to Hebrews was written. They're trying to tell us about Jesus. He's trying to tell us about our anchor. If you make it a priority to tell others about Jesus, you are being a great blessing to them. So that in and of itself is a worthwhile reason. But even more than that, as you're looking for opportunities to bring up Christ to others, you'd be amazed at how more often you're just thinking about the gospel. You're thinking about how to apply it to different situations and circumstances. You'll find that it's much, you just become more attuned to the gospel's application and relevance to not only others' lives, but your own. It'll be a powerful, it'll have a powerful impact on you as well. Six, Express thanksgiving for what you have. As you make it a regular practice to express thanksgiving, it will become easier and easier for you to see how kind and gracious God is to you on a regular basis. As you see his blessings in your life, it will become harder for you to doubt that he loves and cares for you. That's certainly been true for me. In seasons when I am more diligent to think of ways that God is being gracious and kind to me, when I am being more intentional to express thanksgiving, it is much harder for me to to doubt God's love for me because I'm just more aware of all the different things that he's offering me compassionately each and every day. And there's so many things that are so easy for us to overlook, but when we're aware of those things and when we're sensitive to them, again, it's so much harder for us to doubt his love for us because we see what he's offering us every day. And then the seventh and final one, this might sound a little weird, but it's be suspicious of your own emotions. And I would argue that this might be the most important one of all of these. This isn't as much an activity 
as much as it's a disposition to embrace. Redeemer, if you want to grow in your faith, if you want to grow in your confidence that God's love, that God loves you, no matter how good or bad your days are going, you have to value truth over your own feelings. Our emotions and our feelings are not trustworthy. They are fickle, they change, they can lie to us easily, each and every day. I'm not saying that they're always wrong, so don't hear me saying that. I'm just saying we need to have a healthy suspicion of of our own emotions and feelings. We shouldn't just always accept them as truth because sometimes they actually do, and in fact, a lot of the time, they contradict what is actually true. In moments when we are doubting, in moments when we are discouraged, we might feel that God hates us. We might feel that we are alone. That does not mean that that is true. We have to forsake those beliefs, those feelings, and hold on to and remind ourselves of what is true. But we're not gonna be able to do that if our desire isn't ultimately to prize the truth over our own emotions. So again, that is a disposition, that is a posture that we have to take. We have to want to hold on to the truth more than we hold on to our fleeting emotions. We have to test our emotions against scripture. When you begin to question God's love and you begin to doubt, again, go back to his word. Talk with someone else, have them remind you what is true. I feel like this thing is true, is it? Don't just believe it because it's what you feel. So again, be suspicious of your own emotions. I wanna wrap up by just reminding you that friends, Christ is sufficient for you. And not only that, he is trustworthy. He is your sure and steadfast anchor. If you have placed your faith in him, you have every reason to begin each and every morning with confident assurance that you are loved and that you are saved. And that goes for your best days and your worst. Let's be a church that is known for having such a hope. Let's make that our goal. Let's make that our prayer. Let's do that now. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, let that be true of us. Let Redeemer Church be known and be marked by this kind of assurance and hope. Let us be men and women who are not tossed to and fro by the the waves of our own emotions and by trials, but let us be those who are anchored in Christ, whose work is done, whose promises are sure, 
and whose faithfulness to us is steadfast. Let him be our hope and our confidence and let that produce an amazing joy that persists day in and day out in each one of us. Thank you that we can have such a hope, such a confidence, such a joy. We don't deserve it, but you have loved us and given it to us. So thank you, Father, for that. And thank you, Christ, for sacrificing yourself for us in love. We pray this in your name. Amen.